Well, if you would, I'd like to ask you to pray with me two more times. One, so we can get into God's Word by, by allowing that Word to make a difference in our lives, and the second, before we leave here, uh, asking God to help us take, take away what we're supposed to take away from our time here together. So let's, let's do uh, the first one now. God, we, uh, we don't want to just bumble through the service. We want to continue to punctuate it with prayer, asking you to continually step into it and do with these pieces what they're supposed to do. They function to bring our hearts to a place of worship, to cast our attention onto you and away from all the things that distract us and discourage us, God. But we, we want to do that now by looking into your word. And as we move through these verses, we pray that you would use them to chisel away the things that don't look like Christ. And so we leave here more conformed to his image. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul's been writing, well, he's been writing this letter. He wrote this letter. We've been moving through the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And it's, it's a letter that is so helpful in so many ways because the things that uh, the ancient church struggled with are things that we struggle with today. And so as we've been moving through 1 Timothy, you see how practical it is and how it touches on things that are relevant to us. And then he finishes with a long section that has to do with one of the grave dangers that were a danger to the church then that is a danger to the church now. And it has a lot to do with money. It has a lot to do with stuff. It has a lot to do with accruing material wealth, the desire for things, the desire to have stuff. And it's easy for us to go, well, that's not me because... Um, I'm not as rich as the biggest house on the block, that family, or I don't own as many things as this other person in my family, um, but, but it's, that, that's a wrong path to take because we live in a time and a place where we are very wealthy. And the dangers that Paul talks about here are dangers that are real for every church everywhere, not just the church in Ephesus. So I want you to grab your Bibles, open your Bibles, uh, open up your Bible apps, whatever you need. And if you don't have a Bible, you can lift your hand up and one of our ushers will bring you uh, a copy. If you don't own a Bible, please just write your name in the front of it. It's not desecration, it's yours, take it. Um, We want to make sure that you have a Bible and that you can follow along with us in 1 Timothy. This is toward the end of the New Testament. You kind of get into the books that start with T. And 1 Timothy, right there at the front of them, or after Thessalonians. Um, And then we're right at the end of this letter that Paul's writing. Hey, Timothy, uh, taught you a lot of great stuff here, and we're going to end this letter with a long warning about a kind of disease that enters churches, that, that riddles churches hurts Christians, and oftentimes people fall away, walk away from the faith because of this danger, because of this trap, because of this snare. And we don't want to just go, meh, that's not a snare for me. Uh, It might be we're already trapped if that's our attitude. And so you'll see this is a long chunk. Now, you know, we could preach this in three, four sermons, maybe two sermons, 
And there were a couple times this week where I'm like, why did I, why did I block off the entire last chunk? Um, maybe I should have separated it. But it really, I think you'll see it's all together. These last, um, we're going to go from verse 2 all the way to the end. And here's what I want you to see. I'm going to give you a road map. And then we'll follow the road. First, you're going to see that Paul has one major idea. It sounds like it's about a lot of things. He's really on about one major thing. And then he's going to give us a specific example of that major idea. He's going to bring it down to earth and give a specific example of how this kind of big thing shows up in a specific way. Make sense? And then he's going to tell us what to do about it. So one major idea, a specific example of that major idea, and then he's going to give us some help. Well, what do we do about that specific problem that represents that major idea? What's the major idea? Nothing new. We've seen it throughout the entire book. His major idea is this. Sound doctrine produces sound living. If 1 Timothy had one major theme, one thesis, it would be that healthy teaching produces healthy living. And I don't mean physically healthy, I mean spiritually healthy. That's what sound means. And you can reverse it. Unhealthy teaching produces unhealthy living. Such that if your life is kind of spiritually a mess, you should go back to square one, which is what are you believing? Because belief produces behavior. So when the behavior is off, and you try to fix it at the level of behavior, that's kind of a problem. You've got to fix it at the level of belief. There's something wrong that you're believing that is producing the wrong behavior. And this is replete throughout the entire letter. I just want to remind you quickly of a couple places. In the, in the beginning, he starts off in verse 3, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so you can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. What's the major problem at the church of Ephesus? People teaching wrong things. And people aren't going to live godly lives like they're supposed to if they're being taught things that are not true. Then you see if you drop down to 1 verse 19, chapter 1 verse 19, he wants Timothy to wage good warfare by doing what? Holding faith and a good conscience. Some people reject the faith and they make a shipwreck of their faith, but you hold the faith. This is a body of truths that we're supposed to hold on to and believe. And so if we come to church going, ah, just give me the, the homework. Just give me what I'm supposed to say and what I'm supposed to do and how to raise kids and how to be a good husband and how to be a good wife. Yes, those are good things to address, but not if you don't know doctrine, because doctrine is supposed to impel you to do those things, constrain you to do those things. And so if you have a wrong view of marriage, you will not be the husband you're supposed to be. What is marriage actually? What's it for? And as we build a doctrinal understanding of what these things are supposed to be and what they're for, then we can live into them because doctrine comes first. Then you live out of the doctrine. Chapter 3, verse 2, you'll see that the, one of the qualifications of elders in the church and one of the reasons why they're supposed to be there, a lot of character reference stuff, but they have to be able to teach. Why? Well, so that they can protect sound doctrine. Because if they can't protect sound doctrine, people aren't going to be able to live the way they're supposed to live. You see in chapter 4, right there at the top in verse 1, 
The Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teaching of demons, the insincerity of liars, right? So people are going to walk away oftentimes because of the teaching that wasn't right. I think some of us are so concerned that our kids are going to go off to college and get caught up in parties and drugs and, and weird stuff. Yeah, maybe, but the best preventative for that is catechizing them, teaching them doctrine, helping them understand it, not just memorize it, but understand it. And that builds a foundation for living and how we behave in and outside of the church. Continuing in chapter 4, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Words matter. We should be nitpicky about words, words that we sing, words that are preached, Bible translations that we use. Not to get into quarrels about words, we'll see that kind of nonsense in a minute. But, but the, the fact that what we're saying matters, it matters for life. And in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Train yourself for godliness. How do I train myself for godliness? I need to be able to discern what's a myth and what's true. And see how it matters and why it matters. In verse 13, chapter 4, until I come, I want you to devote yourself to what? To the public reading of Scripture and not just reading it, but exhorting people to live it and teaching them what it means, right? I want you to preach. Increasingly in our seminaries, we have people that have, are de-emphasizing preaching to emphasize programs, growth, models of ministry. And then when you go to Scripture, you're like, I'm not, I'm not really, but I see teach, 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 teach. Well, people don't like teaching anymore. Well, you're already starting off on the wrong foot. If your church is looking like what culture wants it to look like instead of doing what Paul told Timothy to do, and this letter just says it over and over, teaching has to be central. You want a healthy church? Where's the teaching? Is it central or is it kind of on the side? Is it the main thing or something else the main thing and teaching is kind of tacked on because we're obligated to do it because it's a church? Well, no, teaching should be the main thing. And if teaching is the main thing, if doctrine is kept and protected and taught, then living should be a result of that. Well, I'll just stop one more, chapter 5. Toward the end of chapter 5, he talks about the elders who rule well. They should be considered of double honor, especially the ones who do what? Strategize well. Figure out growth programs. They preach. <laughs> they teach. That's what they do well. They do well what they're supposed to be doing. And there's others that we can look at throughout this letter, uh, but I want to move into this last leg of the letter. But all this to say that what he emphasizes here, he's been emphasizing the whole time, that false teaching leads to destruction, bad teaching leads to bad living, but good teaching leads to good living. And so if you've got bad living, you've got to start with the teaching. And we have to protect that. It's when people are derailed theologically that they are often derailed in life. Something's off in what they believe about God or themselves. And so then it's, something's off in the way they live it out. 
And so right here, he tells us in chapter 6, let's look at verses 2 through 5, that he emphasizes this. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. That's different than being uh, dedicated to words, but just quarreling on the level of words. And then the kind of quarreling that does what? produces health, produces a more doctrinally sound church? No, the kind of quarreling that just produces envy and that produces dissension and that produces slander and that produces evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. You say, well, I thought you started off by telling us this was going to be about money. Yeah, but look how long it takes Paul to get there. That's why I'm taking a while to get there because that's what he did. He doesn't want to just start attacking the money stuff. He wants you to understand this is not about what's in your bank account. This isn't about how much is in your checking. It's not a simple matter of looking at your account and going, how much did you give to good causes? How much did you keep for yourself? This is much deeper than that. And it goes to the level of depth that doctrine lies. And so he fronts it with all this stuff. In fact, if you are comfortable circling and highlighting and underlining in your Bible, and many of you are, I, I really hesitate to, but... Uh, it's, it's just, it's paper. It's okay, you can buy another one, right? It's, it's the content that is holy. But if you're into circling and, and drawing, you, I encourage you to do this. I want you to circle all the places where doctrine comes up in this last chapter. And I'm going to give them to you. I want you to circle these, and then I want you to draw a box around when, God, when Paul talks about godliness, Right, living out the doctrine so you can see the interplay between what you know and how you live. The beliefs that feed behavior. Doctrine, you can circle right, right there at the end of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. Verse 3, if anyone teaches, so you can circle teaches. Circle doctrine, a different doctrine that does not agree with what? Circle sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and what? Teaching, circle teaching. That accords with godliness. I drew a box around that. There it is. All this stuff accords with godly living. You could drop down to verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There's godliness. I drew a box around that. Verse 6, but godliness. Drew a box around that. Then at the end of verse 10, when he's talking about this love of money piece that we're so familiar with, many of us, he says when people get this wrong, that's when many people have walked away from the faith. I circle that, because when he says the faith, he's talking about content. He's not just talking about uh, faithfulness, but the faith that you hold to, that you believe. Verse 11, as for you, man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness. I drew a box around that, and all the words that come around it, define it and round it out. Verse 12, fight the good fight of what? The faith. I circle that. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called about which you made the good confession. Circle that because that's doctrine again. And then in verse, the end of verse 13, the very last phrase there, the good confession, same thing. Circle that. Verse 14, keep the commandment. Circle that. Content again. And then you can circle all of 15 and 16 because here's a doctrinal statement. He's giving you a creed to hold to, to believe about Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, if you're reading through this in your devotional time, like I, I thought we were talking about money, and now he's talking about Jesus and dominion 
He's sovereign, king of kings, you know, unapproachable light. No one can see him. Just tell me what to do with my money. No, be quiet for a minute and eat these vegetables. It's doctrine. And so he goes back and forth between doctrine and what it's supposed to do in your life. Finally, verse 20. Oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy. This is it. I don't know if it's because he ran out of ink, ran out of parchment, or it's just a, a natural closing to the letter, but this is his last, his last thing for Timothy. Guard the deposit. And the deposit there is not money. The deposit there is doctrine. It's like Paul is saying, your real treasure, what you really need to lock away and keep tight and keep safe and protect is not the, the money that folds and jingles. It's the, it's the treasure of truth that has been given to you. Protect that and everything else will follow. So I circled guard the deposit. I circled in verse 21, professing it. And the last two words before grace be with you is the faith again. So, a lot of circles. If you did all that, you see a lot of circles, and you can quickly with your eyes see like, wow. At first you read this, he, go, he really goes in about money. But before he does that, during doing it, and at the end of it, he talks about doctrine. So we get your belief right, then you'll get your living right. Now he's going to give a specific example. A specific example of when your belief goes wrong, your behavior goes wrong. And it's when you don't understand what to do with money. Your life will be derailed. That's a specific example of the bigger truth. And it's an example that was hurting the church then. It's an example that hurts the church now. How often do we hear about people that fall away from the faith because they went to a church that sold them a bill of goods? If you give money to the church, you will get more money in your account. And after a while, that doesn't quite work. And the leaders of the church keep telling them, well, it's because your faith isn't there. You can't just give money. You have to give faith. It has to be big faith. Dial this number, but dial it in faith. And people are hurt by it. They're shattered by it. You think of people, pastors even, that run away with money from the church. It's not a problem that remains ancient. It's a problem that uh, continues today, and especially in America, because we're so wealthy. We're so wealthy. And Paul doesn't just let us do easy fixes. We're going to be a church where we don't talk about money. Let's just go the other way and just, if we never talk about it, never ask anyone to give any of it, never address it. Well, but that's not biblical either. And as we'll see, that doesn't fix the problem. So he fronts it with all this stuff about doctrine, unhealthy words, uh, sound words that produce healthy living, unhealthy words will produce unhealthy living. And then he gives a specific example, right? In verse 5. It's constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now, there's a lot of ways that depraved in mind and deprived of truth shows up. But in this specific instance, he's talking about people that imagine. He's saying imagine because it's not true. It's their imagination that creates it. They think it's true, but it's just a figment of their imagination that godliness is a means of gain. If you worship God, you'll get stuff. God wants to make you comfortable. The reason why Jesus died on the cross is to get you to not suffer. The reason why Jesus suffered is so that you wouldn't have to suffer. Oh, that sounds nice. Doesn't that sound good? Jesus suffered so you wouldn't have to. Isn't that tweetable? Isn't that so tweetable? But it's not true. (laughs) 
Bible calls us to follow in that suffering, that Jesus is a model of suffering, that he presses into suffering. Paul asked Jesus to remove suffering, and Jesus said, no, I want you to be more like me, not less like me. And if I remove that suffering, Paul, you will be arrogant. If somebody comes to Jesus thinking that the gospel is, I'm going to get stuff, they didn't come to Jesus, they're still worshiping themselves. They're not surrendering to God as King of kings and Lord of lords, the sovereign that Paul talks about in that passage. But I'm still at the top of my own desires. And so there's the doctrinal error. Godliness as a means of gain. So then he immediately corrects it with the opposite, what really is true. He says godliness with contentment is great gain, but it's not what you think it is. If if your idea of the greatest gain is material possession. You're worshiping the wrong God. But it's not that God wants you to not gain anything. It's a different kind of gain. And it's the godliness that comes with contentment. I love how he, he doesn't say it's poverty. Because that would just be the easy answer. Just give all your stuff away. Have nothing in your account. And then you'll be spiritually protected. No, you can still be depraved. You just don't have the tools to show it. It's be content with what you have. We'll see that again in a moment. But he corrects it by saying that the answer to covetousness, the, 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 the opposite of covetousness is contentment. And that's great gain. That's godliness. And he gives the reasoning behind it. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. If you just hold to the doctrinal truth that you're going to die and that death is a kind of thing where you uh, transfer to another kind of realm where you can't take material things with you, that's a very basic truth. But he's saying if you're just reminded of that simple truth, you'd be protected from covetousness. You can't take the stuff. So you think of the author of Ecclesiastes, he's saying everything is vain, right? Everything is vain, everything's meaningless. Even if you own multiple companies, you accrue all kinds of wealth, you don't even know what to do with all this wealth, even if you had as much wealth as you possibly could have, you're going to die and pass it off to some other bum. If we understand that doctrinal truth, it gives us a perspective. Okay, what do I do with stuff? I don't worship it because I can't take it. We've brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, it's it's hard for us. Well, how much food? How much food is too much food? How much clothing is too much clothing? How much should I spend on clothing? Only buy stuff on sale? Should we wear that as a badge of honor? I only shop at, you know, Goodwill. Well, that can be another badge of arrogance. And that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about contentment. And we all have to draw lines with our own budgets and figure out where we're going to spend, how much we're going to spend. But he's talking about not just looking at the numbers, he's looking at the heart. Are you content with what you have or are you always vying for more? Do you need the new outfit? Because last Christmas you wore the same outfit and oh my goodness, I mean, is that, where's the heart in it? is I think what Paul is trying to press into. It's not how much is the next outfit. What does it cost? He's saying what is driving the desire to have. Is it contentment or is it covetousness? Somebody can buy an outfit out of complete contentment, and someone can buy an outfit out of total covetousness. It's a heart matter. 
And so we don't look around at each other and how much is that? How much is what is what is he wearing? I didn't see that. She wasn't she didn't have that last week. Not, not, it's not that. We we don't have that x-ray vision to see the contentment. But brothers and sisters, if you're not content, you will be miserable, constantly chasing stuff. And it leads to destruction. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I mean, you can hear Paul's tone. He's not like, eh, be careful with the money stuff. I mean, it's ruin and destruction. It's a snare. It's a trap. It'll kill you. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith And they didn't just wander away from the faith. As they did it, they pierced themselves with many pangs. It hurts in a lot of different ways to chase consumerism and to be driven by covetousness. You'll notice, lest we think, you know, this has nothing to do with us because I really don't make that much money or something like that. He says in verse 10, it's not having money, it's those who desire to have more money. It's the quest for gain. It's the desire and the longing for more. Here's how much I have, but I want this much. I covet the person that has more than me, and I want to get to that level. And what do you do when you get to that level? You want to get to the next one. So he doesn't say it's for those who are rich. He says it's those who desire riches. They fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, that snare of wanting, that snare of craving more. They fall into senseless and harmful desires. They don't even make sense. You don't need to be there. You could have avoided those, but your life is all messed up. You're plunged into ruin and destruction. Why? Not because you have money, verse 10, but because you love it. Money is not the root of evil. That's a misquote. So here's an example. Here's an example of where words count and matter for how you live your life. If you view money as evil, you will have to just, just get rid of it. Like a, it's like hot potato. As soon as it comes, get it off, you know? As soon as Jesus comes, I don't want to be holding cash. He's going to catch me. No, money is not evil. The love of it, the love of it. You can have it and not love it. But if you love it, that's the problem. And it's not the root, it's a root, but we don't want to go, oh, it's only a root. It's a root of all kinds of evils. There's all kinds of ways in which you will fall into temptation if you have a love for money. It is through this craving. There it is again. He's emphasizing it's not the having, it's the craving. It's not what you have, it's the wanting of it. And it's because of that want and that desire that some people, they end up just not in the faith. And they end up with their lives all messed up in all kinds of ways because they pursued the American dream, driven by having, driven by wanting. I wrestle with this when we prepare Christmas lists. I want to say when the kids prepare Christmas lists. I'm not going to act like we don't have, adults don't have Christmas lists. Like, what do you want for Christmas, honey? Oh, maybe this, maybe that. What do we do? Tell our kids, crumple those Christmas lists and throw them in the trash. You want stuff? That is evil. Well, no, not necessarily. But we do want to pay attention. Do we create our list? And we, we, the reason why we look forward to Christmas is because we're going to gain these treasures. 
and how easily we miss the treasure is Christ. And if you're in a household where it's skewed, where that's not, maybe we do get rid of gifts for a season. Maybe we do. Is that the worst thing? Is that the worst thing to emphasize the fact that Jesus is the treasure? We don't want to just get through Christmas service at church. Let's just get through it. Hurry up. Presents. Linger a little bit. Have a devotional time. Train your children as they're chomping at the bit to dig through that wrapping paper to just sit and listen to Scripture for a little bit. Train them to wait. Well, he wants us to be careful of something that is very interior to ourselves. It's hard to see. It's hard to discern. But it's about a craving that lies inside the heart, the craving to want stuff. And it stems from a truth that is a lie that God wants me to have stuff. There's the lie that produces the behavior, the wrong belief that produces the behavior. God wants me to have stuff. He's the Father of lights. He gives every blessing. And He rewards us with things. And so I give to the church, and then He bails me out of debt, or whatever the thinking might be. And that will lead to a path of destruction. So then he tells us what to do. The major idea is wrong beliefs will produce bad behavior. The specific example is the wrong belief that God is for money for you. The bad behavior is chasing it, and your life is a wreck. People don't like you anymore. You use people to just get up the next rung of the ladder in life. You don't really have friends. You just have stepping stones. You know, your life just becomes a transaction where you just hope you keep, uh, you, you get more on the end of each of those exchanges. You don't pursue a career because you love it or because you're thinking God specifically tailor-made you for this career. You pursue it because it, it's a path to money. You take a job change not because it moves you closer to a healthy church. You take it because more money versus less money. And not a lot of other thought of how it might impact your kids or your family or if you keep moving every time you get offered a new position, how that might hurt the family. Well, if money's at the top, you don't care about those decisions, but then those decisions cause cracks in the foundation. So what to do about it? He doesn't want to leave you hanging, and he definitely doesn't want you to just go, well, I guess just get rid of money when the interior thing is what counts. So he said in verse 11, he goes for Timothy first. He says, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. See how he brings it to the interior, not the exterior. It's not the bank account. It's the heart account, right? It's what's inside your heart that matters. Make sure your heart looks a certain way, and that kind of person knows what to do with material things. The person that is what? Righteous, godly, full of faith, full of love, a steadfast kind of person, a gentle kind of person. Have you noticed that the more money you get, the more addicted you are to things, kind of the harsher of a person you become? You become impatient. People are in your way. You just want stuff and you want things and you want to get to that next thing and you don't take time to just sit with somebody and listen because... The more your heart goes in that direction, the less gentle you generally become. And so these aren't just random things. These are things that he wants you to be steadfast. Why? Because if you chase money, you'll eventually quit church. 
You'll eventually figure out that thing is a lie, but you're not willing to give up the idol, and so you'll just give up the facade, stop going to church, and just full-on pursue money. But he wants you to be steadfast, steadfast, stay with it, stay with the faith. Through the ups and downs, learn to be content. And so you see how he gets to the interior of things, and you see how he basically has a two-sided command of flee this and pursue that. You, you can't flee it. You can't run from the problem unless you know the solution that you're running toward, right? So he flee it, but you don't flee it by emptying your account, giving everything away, and if, if, if the Lord leads you to that, you know, okay, uh, just don't become a burden on the church. Uh, channeling what he said about the widows like three sermons ago or whenever it was. Um, but that's not the solution. The solution is flee the temptation, the snare of covetousness by pursuing contentment in God. And it looks like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And it's not going to happen without a fight. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy. Now think about it. Timothy needs to hear this. Timothy is Paul's guy. Timothy is Paul's, you know, Paul puts Timothy in charge of an entire region. This, F, this Ephesian church that Paul loves and he longs to see the elders again. And he puts Timothy there because Paul can't be there. Timothy's a pretty important dude. And he's warning Timothy. He's not like those people out there, the people with the money, the people out there. No, the minister. You will fall into the snare, Timothy. You will chase money, Timothy, if you don't fight. Fight the good fight, verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I remember he's telling him. I remember when you stood up in front of people and said, I believe. I'm following Christ. And you made that confession and, and, and was obvious to us that God called you to this. Now, here's what's interesting. It's in the past, Right? Timothy was called to this faith, and there was a time in the past when he stood up, and there were witnesses. Timothy confessed, so he's got it, right? But take hold of it. Well, which one is it? Do I have it, or do I still need to take hold of it? Yes and yes. Yes and yes. For those of us here who are firmly convicted about the doctrine of election, that God chooses us, we don't choose him. I think that's scriptural. But the doctrine of election should never lead to a lifestyle of apathy. Because if it does, you got it wrong. God speaking to us first and calling to us doesn't mean, oh, I can just take my hands off the wheel, coast, do whatever I want. You're not even in the car, if that's what you're thinking. If God has taken a hold of your life, you see that there's a, a need to strive and to push, to strain Think of Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, I haven't gotten there yet. I press, I press toward the mark to achieve it. Even though in the same letter he's saying, it's been achieved. It's something we have and it's something we pursue. And Paul's not asking you to figure that out. How does that tension resolve? He just wants you to understand that there's something you have, yet there's a sense in which you still have to fight to take a hold of it to appropriate it, that eternal life that you were called to. Because there are people that say they have it, but they don't fight. And those people end up losing. 
Well, he wants us to fight for it. He wants us to stay in the race. Some people think he means a race. Fight, fight could mean run, run, run a race, a competition. It could mean a, a, a fight, a match. But he wants you to press. He wants Timothy to continue. And he's serving this God. These witnesses were in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Again, he's putting it back in God. God is the one that gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Uh-oh, Paul, he's about to get, he's about to get doctrinal. Right? But Jesus made this good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your job is to protect truth. And you're not going to protect it if you start giving in to these snares and traps that lead you off on tangents. You'll end up planting a prosperity gospel church, Timothy. You'll do it because it's easy. The people come. People will chase the green, and you'll get a lot of it too. No, 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 no. What are they teaching? Well, he gets into it in verse, we won't unpack every line, but verses 15 to 16. Lord Jesus Christ will which he will display at the proper time, his appearing, he'll display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Think about how opposite this doctrinal statement is to the typical prosperity gospel church. They'll say, yeah, he's sovereign, he's king, but you're a king's kid. The emphasis goes to you, your royalty. You're a king's kid. You're a god. It's a small g, but you're a god. He created you in his image, didn't he? They don't take you to Genesis to unpack the imageness. They just quote it, and you're like, oh, yeah, I vaguely remember something in the beginning about being created in his image, and they'll tell you he created you to be a god. And they'll use Jesus' kingship as a way to show you that you're king, you're queen, you're royalty, you deserve treasures. You're royalty, aren't you? The king of kings and the lord of lords, he says in verse 16, who alone has immortality, which is another way of saying, you're going to (laughs) die. You can't take the stuff with you. And if you should just recognize your mortality and his immortality, then you will focus on the one treasure that you have, which is this immortal, invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light. No one talk, wants to talk about how unapproachable God is. They only talk about how approachable he is. Just give him money, and he'll give it back. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. They'll tell you, look in the mirror, and you'll see him. To him be honor, not you. To him be eternal dominion, not you. Stop craving, stop wanting to gain dominion in this life and recognize that only he has dominion. So are doctrinal statements relevant? Yes, Think about it and let the things that you hold as true press into specific areas in your life as Paul is doing here. And he gives a final specific word to those who are rich, not just desire, but they have stuff. Well, we have stuff. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them to give up all their stuff. No, back to the heart. Don't be arrogant. Do not be haughty. Also, watch your hope. Are you setting your hope in the stuff? Or are you setting your hope on God? Nor to set their hopes, he says, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. So there's the stuff you flee from in verse 17. Here's the stuff you pursue in verse 18. Do good. Be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. What do you do with your stuff? Bless people with the stuff. 
and thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How do I take hold of this calling that I say is sure, this calling that, that I say I'm saved? Well, it's not because you said a prayer with your grandmother at your bedside. I mean, that might have been the entrance. But taking hold of it looks like something, and one of the things it looks like is what you do with your money. So at our earliest stages, as little toddlers in the playpen saying, mine, I had it first. We, we have to grow out of that in Christ. So he wants them to learn what to do with the stuff, to be rich in good works and be generous and be ready to share, be, be willing to give. Is there anything in your life that you have such a tight grip on that if you lost it, you would feel lost? I mean, you can have prized possessions, but if you lost it, would you feel lost? Or would you be like, well, it's a thing, right? He wants you to be that second type of person. So you can take hold of that which is truly life, because you can't find life in things. Finally, he closes with the final charge, wrapping it all up. Old Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. They'll say, oh, we have the truth. No, you don't. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. You want to stay in the faith? Learn the faith. Crack open a theology book once in a while. Don't just read the Bible, but think about what other people have said about it that have gone before you and have read it a lot more than you. When the church opens up slots to, for teaching and for getting together, for gathering around the Word, be chomping at the bit to get there. Be more excited about getting around a table to open up God's word than you would be if somebody said, free money. You know how people charge the Walmart doors on Black Friday? We should be charging the doors on Tuesday nights because that's the treasure and that is what will keep you from getting derailed in your faith, not the stuff. And finally, what we all need to do anything that he has written in this letter Grace. Grace be with you, Timothy. Because left to ourselves, we can't do it. We need God to do it. Let's pray.